0: Hello, fellow explorers, and welcome to the Psychic Jungle. This is the podcast of alternative transmissions. Secret Himalayas. Now some of you who've tuned in may wish to listen to one and two because three, episode three, brings all of the elements together into one holistic whole. It does have a story, and therefore some of the concepts, if you've listened to one and two, will now be brought together and make perfect sense, hopefully. Shambhala, sometimes referred to in the West as the El Dorado of Shangri-La, is a mythological kingdom protected by a psychic barrier, so no one can find the kingdom who is not meant to. For centuries, Mongolians and Tibetans have believed in the hidden kingdom of Shambhala, hidden behind the distant mountains north of the Himalayas. That was written by Mary Sutherland, taken from her work The Legend of Shambhala. Today we're going to talk about Shambhala. A Canadian diplomat with a deep-seated interest in the esoteric found himself working as the Canadian High Commissioner in India. His name was George. He took a deep personal interest in esoteric matters, Eastern mysticism and so on. He used his time there to travel across the Silk Road, retracing the footsteps of men like Gurdjieff in order to seek out the teachings for himself. Rather like J.G. Bennett, who he mentioned in Episode 2 before him, he used his unique position to benefit his quest for enlightenment. Commissioner James George had read Gurdjieff and was deeply impressed by the teaching of the Fourth Way. His own ideas developed in an altogether different direction, as he believed that the Samung was not to be found in Afghanistan as suggested by Drishar, but instead closer to India and the Himalayas. Following the metaphorical footsteps of the masters, the Canadian James George stumbled across an obscure name, for one Tibetan monastery, which led him to a startling conclusion of his own as the source of the teachings relating to Gurdjieff. No longer impressed by the red herrings lain by Shah, Commissioner James George believed that he'd worked out the real location for the Masters of Wisdom. He came across Zhamung Monastery, sometimes spelt Sur Mang, located inside Tibet. If this was not itself a breakthrough, then there was more to come. James George, being conversant with many Eastern teachings, knew that the monastery had produced a very special student, indeed a man named Trungpa, who was believed by many, including the current Dalai Lama, to be an enlightened soul. His spiritual teaching methods even corresponded with that of Gurdjieff, in the sense that both men employed techniques of shocking and exerting the pupil to Unexpected challenges and so on. The similarities between Gurdjieff and Trongpa were so compelling that the Canadian diplomat became convinced it could only mean one thing that they're trained in the same spiritual system. Diplomat George, while working for the Canadian diplomatic service in the Himalayas, had the opportunity to meet face to face with Trongpa. In the 1960s, while they were both in New Delhi, India, he asked Trungpa about the mythical land of Shambhala as the Tibetan sage stared directly into a mirror, saying that he could see it as he always could whenever he meditated. Trungpa told him that he could see and always insisted that Shambhala was both ethereal and physical. James George reflected on these and other teachings conveyed to him by the Tibetan Lama. James George argued that both Gurdjieff and Trungpa had brought a pendulum swing in mankind's development from the outer back to the inner, from worldly science to experience. What may have been a quaint legend or an old folk tale, a legonomism, this is a Gurdjieffian word, a coded message only understood when the consciousness of the onlooker was sufficiently developed to receive the signal coded within. Legonomism meant that a message was impregnated in either language or symbols to convey meaning and purpose to the psyche at the precise moment it was needed. Teaching people via legonomism meant that a teaching came alive as if the teacher was in the room with the pupil so that every part of the message became vibrant, living, talking, a breathing universal symbol, a far cry from the inert theories based on intellect alone. Intellect could only distort the message which was left, whereas Logonomism or the codified teachings, activated a consciousness conveyed in a whole message. So things were seen holistically. James George believed that both teachers, Trungpa and Gurdjieff, were sent to the west by the Tsar-Mang Monastery of Tibet, and they were sent on a mission. Both men had firmly rejected monasticism. In fact, Gurdjieff condemned it. Which may be at first strange, as George proposed he was part of a monastery, as a later bolt on to the Nyingma tradition, as it may be remembered to practice their teachings within communities, often taking wives, etc., until the nineteenth century when the Yingma was reformed. Essentially, Trungpa and Gurdjieff were acting in line with the original teachings of the Yingma tradition. Their work was very much in the midst of a maelstrom called ordinary life. Every problem thrown at a person in ordinary life became a chance to transform, teach, overcome and was taught by both teachers, Gurdjieff and Trumpa, as a way of transforming oneself. Gurdjieff called his path the fourth way. The way of the first way was that of the fakir, or the physical body, mastery of the physical body to reach enlightenment. The second way was the way of the monk, or through using the emotions to reach enlightenment. The way of the yogi was to use one's intellect to reach enlightenment. Gurdjieff stressed his fourth way was the way of the sly man, the one who wants to develop and become enlightened quickly. Now this is a very interesting point because similarly the yingma is the path which corresponds best to the fourth way as it is the path to transform and become enlightened in one lifetime. George was able to compare, through his vast knowledge of Eastern scriptures, such as Tantric scriptures and Hindu and Buddhism, etc., comments, for example, about speeding up evolution, which were taken directly from the diamond path of the vajrayana school. He suspected that Trungpa, as well as Gurdjieff, used the Buddhist technique in Tibetan Yeshe Cholwa to shock their pupils into wakefulness. Everything told him that the style which both men used must have come from Yingma. Yeshe Cholwa is sometimes called wild wisdom. The Canadian believed that Gurdjieff had as his legacy new, fresh ideas about ecosystems of the universe, effect tools for man to transform himself in the world he lived in. He quoted Gurdjieff's enigmatic conversation with his pupil, the mathematician Peter Ruspensky. He said, If by a certain time what ought to be done has not been done, the earth may perish. Without having attained what it could have attained. Gurdjieff had, in his own lifetime, attempted to bring together an entire system of knowledge which, in the truest term, was holistic to man in relation to the cosmos. James George realized that, in a simple way, while mankind has become aware of ecology in recent decades, which can have a profound effect on life even death of the race, Gurdjieff had already been there to some degree and had a sense of scale, as did J.G. Bennett in his own way, one of the first people to talk about uh, ecological matters because of his knowledge of coal. James George began to discuss the concept of Shambhala, which he rightfully recognised as being brought to India and Tibet around 900 AD, but was a far older concept taken from something called the Kala Chakra Tantra, basically translated as the wheel of time. James George became convinced through his researchers that Shambhala was a teaching tool for man to go in search perhaps externally but also internally, a journey of seeing oneself as one really is. Diplomat George often quoted the Persian Sufi classic Conference of the Birds, whose story is about a journey to China undertaken by a flock of birds. The birds enter into discussion, agreeing to go to the east to meet the mighty Simor of China. Only three of the birds actually reach their destination after many adventures, only to find disappointment at the mighty Simurgh. The trio of birds do, however, see themselves in a mirror. This classic allegorical tale is yet another template for the spiritual journey undertaken by the seeker, the Sufi tale of the Conference of the Birds has been interpreted as the journey to the Sig Morg, being the central eye or essence of a person, or the chattering birds, the various personas or masks we all display. The Canadian diplomat wrote about Shambhala, leaving us to consider whether the mythical kingdom might just be another allegorical tale. James George's own conclusions about Gurdjieff were more complex as he suggested that the Russian mystic had codified Shambhala with solar language. This mystical solar language, he suspected, came to Tantra from earlier sources, possibly Iranian, Babylonian or even Sumerian. James George was on the right track. Had he had known more about Padna Sambhavar and the original translation of the Dharma for Tibetan King Detson, he may have discovered more, but we shall cover this later. We'll come back to that. The expression, wisdom gone wild, or to Tibetan, Yeshe Cholwa, has been better known in the West as crazy wisdom. Perhaps crazy wisdom is best associated with at least one Tibetan, more than any other in our age, and that was, as I've mentioned, Mr Chokma Chungpa. His story is so compelling for two main reasons. Firstly, because in our media-driven environment, we can actually follow the thoughts of Chungpa as he reached a pivotal point of becoming enlightened, allowing others to share his thoughts and feelings within that process. Secondly, his story mirrors that of another maverick spiritual adventurer on many levels. As we've already said, he is very similar to G.I. Gurdjieff. The fact that they may have been products of the same Lama's tree inside Tibet, or been, albeit in different ages, makes this a fascinating tale. And even more interesting, if both men were trained lamas from this place, the Zamang Monastery, then it appears to the casual onlooker as if the masters of this particular monastery had a mission to penetrate the west. Trungpa managed to flee Tibet in 1959 in order to avoid Chinese uh, incursions there and made it to Oxford where he studied at university. Black and white photos of the time show a smiling young man sitting among other 60s students wearing his Lama's attire. Here he lived and like any other student Trungpa enjoyed his time in England having drinks and so on. However one day in 1968 whilst out driving his car his steering went out of control and he sent the car careering through a plate glass window of a joke shop. The accident was far from funny however leaving Trungpa paralysed down his left side. His teacher, Jeremy Haywood visited him in hospital and related that Trungpa saw the accident as a clear message to strip himself of all facade in the world. He had, during his recovery in hospital, decided to abandon all outward props, as he called them, such as llama robes, etc., to present an authentic Tibetan teaching in a Western manner. By 1970, he found himself married to an Englishwoman, Diana, The couple went on to reside in the USA. During the sway of the 60s counterculture revolution, protesters rallied around against wars such as Vietnam and they began the onset of a sexual revolution and took drugs, etc., to reach new highs. The 60s had ushered in huge social change. Trungpa found audiences who wanted to see the llama, as he said, tongue-in-cheek. He met people like beat poet Alan Ginsberg and singer Joni Mitchell, who became his pupil. It was no ordinary Lama, as it became clear that his teaching methods were very different from those expected of a Tibetan Rinpoche. Women students around him became lovers. He swore, he drank, often excessive amounts of alcohol, although he never appeared drunk. One incident underscores this when Trungpa shared a stage with the man who pretended to know all things spiritual. Trungpa listened and gradually displayed signs of being embarrassingly drunk, his followers had to help him off stage. And once inside a lift, going up to another floor, he returned to sobriety, saying, "How did I perform?" His behavior was unpredictable, bizarre, and wild, true to the name of his teaching style. A person once asked him about Gurdjieff's exercise of self-remembering, a sort of spiritual mindfulness. Chongpa shocked the student with his wisecrack. He said. I don't give a fucking shit about that right now. Fancy a drink? By the 1974, he founded the first ever Tantric University in the USA. He drew ever more celebrities into his circle, such as musicians Marion Faithful and John Cage, acid guru Ram Das and writer William Burroughs, as well as intellectuals such as R.D. Lang, a famed psychiatrist. The community may well have been espoused into its Vajra teachings, but this master of crazy wisdom was not without his scandal. Sordid tales emerged from visitors, a passive poet and his wife, who allegedly had been assaulted by a drunken bottle-wielding mob after a dinner dance, stripped and beaten up and thrown at the feet of the Rinpoche, who mocked them. Further insinuations of excessive secrecy, alcoholism and taking advantage of his pupil-guru dynamic for sexual gratification were made by critics. Gurdjieff himself suffered a similar fate in the 1920s when writer Catherine Mansfield visited him at the Priory Institute at Fontainebleau, Paris. She had been dying with an illness and it being incurable, Gurdjieff urged her not to leave Paris but instead use her final days usefully in preparation for the end. Her death from pulmonary tuberculosis caused a furore back in England, and Gurdjieff had to bear the brunt of a myriad of slurs and slanders as a result. Catherine Mansfield chose to stay there and to die as a result, but the public perceptions driven by a hostile press, people saw the whole episode differently. There are parallels between Trungpa and Gurdjieff which do not end there as the Canadian diplomat James George started to realise. His important discovery of the Zaman lineage may have led us to a vital clue as the origin not only of the Fourth Way teachings but Tibetan Buddhism itself which drew upon the most esoteric of systems, the Kala Chakra Tantric System. Most superficial texts will explain that the Kala Chakra system springs from Tibet and the inference there is that the Kala Chakra is a construct of Tibetan Buddhism. To be accurate, the Tantric Kala Chakra was written in Sanskrit with origins in India, perhaps belonging to a far more ancient time if the texts themselves are to be believed. The twin systems of Tibetan astrology and astronomy are taken directly from the Kala Chakra as is the concept of Shambhala. Kalachakra Chakra is the state religion of Shambhala. Although James George believed that Swedenborg had first mentioned Shambhala in the 18th century, it was popularised in underground circles by Scottish right mason Chevalier Ramsey, a known supporter of Jacobite politics. James George did not delve very far beyond the myth, In other words, it remained a theoretical teaching to George in many respects. Duvalier Ramsey recognised Shambhala and Hindu Tantra as being an oriental equivalent of the Kabbalah, but this view may be too simple, and again it does not take into account the ancient provenance of the teachings themselves. This was brought to our attention by a most unlikely character in the second half of the 19th century, who began to bring the notion of Shambhala with its masters of wisdom. Back to life once again, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, eighteen thirty-one, was born of Ukrainian and German aristocratic heritage. To this day, a remarkable woman who will be remembered as one of the enduring, enigmatic characters, a great force of mystical thought on the roof of the world, but none the less influential for that. Without her writings, much of the Tibetan spiritual lineage would not have reached 19th century Europe, and possibly delayed, or even impoverished, the great occult revival in the last quarter of the 19th century. Her work in creating theosophy rescued occult philosophy from the clutches of scientific rationalism and medieval superstition by planting the seed of a psychological evolution in the Western mind. Madame Blavatsky, was one who made Eastern concepts widely known, such as the mythical kingdom of Shambhala. At age 20, Blavatsky is supposed to have come into contact with a Kashmiri mystic, Mahatma Moira, whilst in Hyde Park, London, of all places. Blavatsky used the term Mahatma as it was more familiar to the colonial British, but she would have preferred the Tibetan term Shan shob a reincarnated bodhisattva to describe this being. Mahatma Moya is said to have mapped out her destiny in a special mission. There were several more meetings in such places as Yokohama in Japan and of New York. Here Blavatsky claimed a psychic link to the ascended Mahatmas. This is a common theme with those who encountered the masters. Her principal guru a Kashmiri, as I say, called Moya, eventually resettled in Tibet at the court of the Panchen Lama, the second highest cleric after the Dalai Lama. Another of her spiritual masters went on to the name of Mahatma Kut Humi, it is said hailed from the Punjab. Detractors of Blavatsky argue that her claims are false and she invented her notions of the Mahatmas. Her own story runs that as a young lady she discovered the library of her great grandfather on her grandmother's side was an initiate of Rosicrucianism and a Scottish Rite Freemason, who'd been initiated in the late 1770s into the Rite of Strict Observance. This Rite had been founded by Baron von Hund, a Master Mason, and on whose account implied that he'd received his instruction to pass on this secret charter by unknown superiors. These unknown superiors were said to be a remnant of the Knights Templar who had taken refuge in Scotland many centuries before, after their dissolution and ruthless suppression in 1307. The right of strict observance is both chivalric and subversive, being heavily linked with the Jacobite cause against the English and the re-establishment of an independent Scotland under Bonnie Prince Charles. It was this model of the Scottish right, unknown superiors and secret causes, to affect society that critics suggest is the true inspiration of Madame Blavatsky in her contact with the Mahatmas. The German Rosicrucian Brotherhood published their teachings in the 17th century manuscripts to usher in a new enlightened age. Much of their good work in pushing forward science to counteract ignorance and superstition was halted by the Holy Inquisition of the Catholic Church, driving Rosicrucians further underground for many years. In the midst of Rosicrucianism, they acquired a reputation for being an invisible academy, while in London some openly declared the Invisible College, the precursors of the Royal Society, that were instrumental in rebuilding London in the wake of the devastating fire of 1666. The Royal Society, headed by Wren, ushered in a more civilised scientific age overseen by Rosicrucians and Freemasons. Blavatsky travelled widely, there is no doubt, but her accounts of living in Tibet have troubled some. Again, detractors have cast doubt that she ever went there at all. As for her own version of living in Tibet, which she did as part of her tour of Asia, aged 25, her second sojourn to Tibet, apparently made overland from Turkey, took place at the behest of the Mahatma, when the spirited Russian mystic again landed in the Land of Snows, once more in 1868. Here she remained until 1870, receiving the teachings of her masters in Shigatse at the Tashulungpur Monastery. This monastery is the seat of the Panchen Lama. Given the suspicion of foreigners by the Tibetans, and as we've already seen in episode 1 and 2, the difficulties that foreigners had in entering Tibet, it's quite incredible that Madame Blavatsky was able to enter Tibet with apparent ease. There are very aggressive opponents who may view Blavatsky as somebody making a myth and giving inspiration for those to follow, like Mathers of the Golden Dawn, Crowley, Gurdjieff Bennett, Annie Besant, Alice Bailey, even Idris Shah, to claim that they also had um, encounters with invisible supreme beings in the Hidden Directorate. It does not help her reputation that Madame Blavatsky was prone to fits of hysteria, foul-mouthed tirades against people, and there was a scandalous newspaper exposé from a former employee that she faked miracles at séances, such as using a long white glove stuffed with cotton wool and accusations of plagiarism from earlier sources, including French occultist Pappas. Her disillusioned follower, Emma Collum, claimed in a Christian college magazine that the basis of her contact with the ascended master, Kut Humi, was by a simple means of dropping the so-called Mahatma letters through ceiling floorboards onto the circle below. However, she had supporters, and in defence, they said that uh, it wasn't journalists so much, but Christians of the time that published these attacks against her work. Supporters cite Blavatsky's assiduous research based on translations taken from the complex ancient tantric texts, such as the Kala Chakra, Wheel of Time, as we've discussed. Writer Victoria Lepage, in her work Shambhala, says of Blavatsky that there are figurative clues to the occult tradition that should not be taken as picturesque prose. One such hidden gem, writer LePage says, is contained in Blavatsky's quote about Mother Earth. She says, it beats under the foot of sacred Shambhala. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to me, but LePage argues that this reflects an older tradition, the beating heart of the earth taken from its core inside Tibetan teachings, the most advanced of cosmic secrets concerning a current emanating from Mount Meru. It begs the question, how did Blavatsky come by such knowledge? Was it simply that she translated so much Kala Chakra material in a time, and if so, why did it deliberately disguise and withhold some of what she discovered? One answer could be that Kala Chakra has an inner and outer component. the latter teachings can only be discussed by Lamas to the world at large whilst the inner teachings are known only to initiates of the ancient tradition. By withholding or obscuring certain information in her writings, Blavatsky is revealing that the Kala Chakra information on Mount Meru, exactly as it should be taught, further suggesting that she might well have been a genuine initiate. She certainly used Tibetan terms that were not widely known at this time. Whatever the case, Blavatsky founded Theosophy, which remained the cornerstone of her work, and although the Russian aristocrat, Was largely discredited by the end of her life her work was rubbish just about everywhere even inside esoteric circles although theosophy continued largely unscathed and brought ancient concepts directly taken from the east in its wake if that was the mission of the mahatmas then their disciple had been very successful if madame Vlavatsky was a mere fraud or faker as she's been called then she has been equally successful as unwittingly triggering the genesis of today's New Age movement. One of the big mysteries about Madame Blavatsky, which is to do with her reputation, is that when she further translated Sanskrit material, she revealed something previously unknown about the Tantra. It became known as the Lost Tantra, and is a Kala Chakra masterpiece. The material from this Tantra was immediately recognised as identical in nature to Blavatsky's stanzas of Daizan. And some came to believe that Madame Blavatsky must have been privy to these very secret teachings. Her claims of meeting an Atlantean brotherhood guarding lost teachings suddenly takes on a whole new vista. What seems impossible becomes intriguing, so much so that the present Dalai Lama released his statement in 1989 about the work of the Russian mystic. He said, I am therefore happy to have this long association with theosophists and learn about the centenary edition the voice of silence which is being brought out this year i believe that this book has strongly influenced many sincere seekers and aspirants to the wisdom and compassion of bodhisattva path i very much welcome this centenary edition and hope it will benefit many more the Dalai lama is not the only high ranking lamist to recognize blavatsky and former Panchen Lama back in 1925 was another and noted Orientalist and Buddhist scholar Dr. Suzuki also heaped praised on her work all agree that she remains a Buddhist missionary whose knowledge of the Tantra is second to none. In recent times a renowned Tibetologist David Rigel demonstrated that the Tibetan Buddhist sources of Blavatsky's writings including the secret book of Dizan, originates from the Lost Tantra, which is known as the Mula Kalachakra Tantra. This text is the root of more exoteric Kalachakra Tantra teachings. The latter is more widely known today. Dr. Suzuki formed the opinion that she could have only learnt this advanced knowledge of Tantra whilst being trained in a Tibetan monastery. Havatsky says she accompanied her master into Tibet, where she became acquainted with the old language of Zenzar the most ancient form of Sanskrit. Using this ancient language, she learnt the teachings including the inner Kala Chakra, the secret Kala Chakra. David Rigel has released an academic paper which suggests that the lost Mula Tantra remains unknown, largely due to the fact that we only have a series of manuscripts of this largely untranslated work. Discoveries made in Nepal in the 1970s showed that much of this tantric work was preserved on palm leaves in Nawari script. Nepalese language. The Nawari people are mentioned later and this has special status when connected to the preserving of the ancient knowledge of the ascended masters. So it's no surprise that they were the guardians of this lost Tantra. Rigel seems to suggest that the origins of the Tantra may lie in Hinduism. He lists the king of Shambhala and links the transmission of their knowledge back into humanity via the Rishis of India. So perhaps Madame Blavatsky did come into this knowledge whilst in India, which would be more feasible than her claims of in Tibet. If the latter were true, it would make her one of the greatest travellers of her age, to boot. It's more likely that Blavatsky came into contact with Buddhists that existed inside Imperial Russia, the Buryat people. They certainly had contact with the Dalai Lama, as we've seen in earlier episodes, and were key players in the Russian great game. The Buryats were also custodians of the Kala Chakra as it moved out of Tibet into Mongolia and then later into Siberia. The Buryats would have been had access to Russian lands and peoples and been conversant with the mother tongue of the empire. Due to the uncertainty surrounding her sources, maybe she should be regarded as the precursor to Gurdjieff himself, a person who'd come by high esoteric teachings and codified them in a way that was palatable to the people of their age, both seem to have a mission above and beyond our own lives and day-to-day responsibilities, as if they were acting under the auspices of the hidden directorate, the masters of wisdom. Shambhala may have been popularised by people like Madame Blavatsky, although it was first brought to attention by Westerners in the 19th century by Alexandra cosmo Koros, who wrote about the Kala Chakra system. Some may argue that Shambhala was presented even before that by the Catholic missionary Andrade, as we discussed in the 1620s. But what remained an enduring, elusive other-world myth, evocative of Paradise Lost, Shambhala, was that the first Westerner to go across into Tibet, Andrade, as we've said, he did so as he'd become fired up by hearing tales of undiscovered lands containing Christians. He had been an early seeker after Shangri-La. Some fragmentary evidence points to Gurdjieff acquiring the Enneagram system, not from Sufis or the Samung, as he says, but from the inner teachers of the Jesuit order, who in turn have acquired the knowledge of the Enneagram centuries before during their time inside Tibet in Lhasa. If you look at Gurdjieff's step diagram which is a diagram about energies the energies of the absolute to the most inert stone on earth or even in the universe there is a series of acquired energies or frequencies in which case mankind is kind of placed in the middle if you like and man himself can acquire certain energies if he is under according to Gurdjieff, 96 laws, he might be a bit mad. If he's under 48 laws, half again, he is in a normal state of being, just a normal chap, if you like. At 24 laws, he becomes a higher being, someone who's balanced. And under 12 laws, less laws, he is most likely to be someone in touch with the eternal part of himself. If we go any further and halve those laws again to six, the person will be enlightened if a person reaches only three laws they would be on the level of the bodhisattva like the buddha muhammad christ and etc so this gives you an idea that gurdjieff himself must have acquired these teachings from an earlier source and there are suggestions that it could be in tibet through perhaps the jesuits who knows it did say that he was in telepathic contact with his teacher who he names as father giovanni again and is this another clue to the jesuit aspect of the teachings in inner asia we leave that one with you shambhala is a sanskrit word meaning the place of silence or place of peace it's a paradise which is physical and also spiritual So it exists, but only to those that can find the right vibration in order to enter it. It's mentioned in the scriptures of Zanzung, which is an ancient culture far, far older than Tibetan Buddhism. In fact, Tibet didn't exist. It was Zanzung, another kingdom before then. There is uh, also the thing to be considered, but Shambhala is... The name of a thousand names. It is a place, a forbidden land, a land of white waters, a land of fire, a land of living gods, of wonders. The Hindus had a word called Aravatha, the land of the worthy ones, again issuing out and referencing these ancient masters of the hidden directorate or the circle of humanity, the masters of wisdom. Across Russia too there were other people among Mongolians and elsewhere that also had names for Shambhala which was called Sambala, I believe in some Hindu texts. The Kali Chakra itself is a very advanced esoteric teaching. We've already said that it doesn't really belong to Tibetan Buddhism. But Tibetan Buddhism does have a lot to say and probably how it's been delivered to the west through buddhism the king of shambhala his name is suhandra we've already said shambhala has an inner and outer core an exoteric esoteric meaning perhaps we could relate that to humankind the body being physical and the mind being inner perhaps this is one of the mysteries of shambhala the tibetans are very quick to point out that it's not a natural land it is a human realm but it can only be reached karmically when one is attuned to the karma and the resonance of Shambhala. Then, of course, one can enter the kingdom. The character which one will encounter during meditation, according to the Tibetans, in order to access Shambhala and enter it, of course, is a type of Buddha. His name is In Tibet, Amida in Japanese or Mitofo in Chinese, the Buddha of Infinite Light. His name in Sanskrit is Amitabha. Once this deity is met inside meditation, it is then possible to reach enlightenment and therefore access the kingdom of Shambhala. This is of course a very Tibetan take on the mystery of Shambhala but actually coming back to the original kingdom of Zanzung the country which existed before Tibet had been formed was Zanzung, an ancient kingdom which also believed in a Shambhala type myth and the Dalai Lama, the 14th Dalai Lama actually references this because there was an ancient religion far older than tibetan buddhism which is called bon or bun and in this there was an older kingdom which was like shambhala and i'm going to try and pronounce the name olmu longring similarly olmu longring is a place which is identifiable inside the Himalayas, so it has a physical side perhaps But it does also have an ethereal side which doesn't exist as far as physical uh, manifestation is concerned. It is also a place of purity and wisdom, exactly the same as Shambhala. So the two are probably talking about the same place but using different names. They're almost identical. And this is where the Kala Chakra comes back into play because it is a movement from this outer physical world, inside to the mystical or inner world of a person, and that is the purpose of approaching Shambhala. Our old friend, Chankpa Rinpoche, the man of wild wisdom that we talked about earlier, crazy wisdom, his name crops up again because he began to talk about the Kala Chakra system in relation to Shambhala as an inner yoga, where devotees or disciples could practice this inside of themselves and be reborn into a paradise where engagement in the process of spiritual enlightenment if you like can be realized in this lifetime so it's an inner yoga a type of transformative lifestyle how did these teachings reach us in the first place from the kala chakra from shambhala well according to indian myths It is in the 10th century, so quite recently, within a thousand years, a man called Tilopa, who was known as the Tahini Maker, who had, through his enormous supernatural powers, reached the kingdom of Shambhala, and that is where he was inducted into the rites of the Kala Chakra system. At the same time, there was another mystic who also wanted the transcendent teachings of Shambhala, he couldn't reach it by supernatural powers, but he, his name was uh, Kala Chakra Prada. He reached it through a vision, and it was through that vision that he got the pure teachings. It was these two that brought the teachings to India. And I must stress this, that the Shambhala teachings of the Kala Chakra went to India first, not Tibet. It is no accident that the teachings went to what is modern-day Pakistan and Kashmir, and this is where the land where Padna Sambavar, who founded the Tantra and Tibetan Buddhism came from. Again this would suggest a mission perhaps, a school inside Odhyana, modern-day Pakistan, traveling towards Tibet with these secret teachings or terma as they're called treasures, um, to plant a seed in people's minds just as gurdjieff said in the modern time if you remember listening to the earlier episodes we talked about gurdjieff said there was a man being sort of molded in order to bring a new teaching in the 20th century to the west but that never happened with disastrous consequences and if you begin to look at the kala chakra the shambhala myth etc you see the actions of the masters and this is the very important thing to understand because these people are real And they are bringing secret teachings which transform people, as attested by the Dalai Lama himself. Similarly, people like Blavatsky, Dorjev, Gurdjieff, and some of the people like Trungpa that we've mentioned acted above and beyond the politics of our age to save the demiurgic message for humanity. And maybe that is the purpose of Shambhala, the pure, indestructible land the ultimate archive of the repository of all human and angelic wisdom. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Do join us again, because in episode four of The Secret Himalayas, we'll be looking at people who actually went in search of Shambhala. And there's some great characters for you. We've got the Mad Baron, a European aristocrat with one eye, who believed he was actually and part of the Shambhala mythos, one of the characters briefly mentioned in episode two, who later turned up to start something called the Shambhala War inside Asia. The very man who put the all-seeing eye on the dollar bill. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do join us again, and we'll be back for episode four, Secret Himalayas. See you there.